Welcome to the business community with me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. We're having some technical difficulties today. Oh, I'm tired. I'm ready for a, uh, I was going to say a glass of gin. Yeah, I'm ready for a glass of gin. A glass of gin. (laughs) Okay, let's get discussing our topical article. Um, So this article was on the BBC about a week ago. And the big headline, the the scary headline, was long working hours kill 745,000 people a year, according to a study. So that's serious stuff. So, Heather, when when you saw that article, what was your reaction? Well, I thought that was quite a lot of people. Yes. Um, And I wanted to know a bit more about why this was happening and where this was happening. Yeah, 745 people in Wales. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So In the world, and yeah, it's, it makes it's, a difference, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. And it's it's a, it's a study by the World Health Organisation. So it's got credibility. It's, it's cre- yeah, credibility. So and I would imagine it, it is a, a global study. Um, and, it, and it does seem that actually the, um, the, the actual figures are from 2016 so if we think about what we've been going through over the last year so 745,000 people died in 2016 from stroke and heart disease due to long hours so that was my first question is how do they know it's directly linked to the long hours is the was the summer the reason yeah so you really needed to be honest it did draw me into the article because I needed that where is it? <laughs> Where are those 750,000 yeah. people? If it's 750,000 people in one town, I'm a bit worried. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're not all in the same city. That would have been catastrophic. But, yeah, how did they know? Well, I suppose they must, they must have decided to look at people who've died from strokes and people who died from heart disease and then look at what their working patterns were. Yeah. They might also have looked at how much alcohol they consumed or whether they smoked or, yeah. you know, there could have been all sorts and of... And that's the difference. When you're looking at headlines, that's the key, isn't it? So this headline basically said working hours, long working hours are killing people. Yeah. Whereas actually the research findings are quite specific mm. um, that working 55 hours or more a week is associated with higher risk of stroke and higher risk of dying from heart disease compared to 35 to 40 hours. So it's not saying there is that direct link, but that this sort of seems to go along with. Yeah, and and like we know, don't we, that, you know, studies, um, they can they can almost paint whatever picture you want them to paint. So yeah. I, and, I'm, and I'm not suggesting for a minute that this isn't significant, but, you know, as they go on then, they start to look at actually, surprise, surprise, almost three quarters of those people were middle-aged men or older men. So, again... Their technical problems continue. Look at that oh, screen. Wow. What's going on there? Well, I'm just going to have to remember what I wrote, aren't I? What's happened to your notes? It's all gone. I'll look over your shoulder, Heather. We're looking at the same article, aren't we? Oh gone oh my goodness you wouldn't think that between us we've got two laptops we've got two microphones um, <laughs> two brains yeah, and we're down to <laughs> we're down to one laptop 
one, looking on the one and recording on the other. Yeah, absolutely perfect. Anyway, anyway. Yes, so it was related to a certain um, category of people and in a certain area, wasn't it? So um, if, if I'm right, it was in Asia. Yeah, predominant, yes, predominantly Southeast Asia and the Western Pacific. Now, my geography is shocking, but where is the Western Pacific going to be? Is it going to be... Southeast Asia. <laughs> is, gonna, no, but is it going to be like area. Indonesia and places like that? I'm guessing or is it, so, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. All right. So, so, but they don't really give, they don't expand on why they're specifically. No. And and there's a lot of unanswered questions there, which I guess the study wasn't there to answer the questions, was it? It was to look for potential links for yeah. somebody else to then go on and do the research about. But there is a lot of stuff around about long working hours. And we, we know, don't we, that there's enough stuff out there that says it's not good for you. This is just a, another, I was going to say another nail of the coffin. That's, yeah, <laughs> good choice of words. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no pun intended there, but it's really serious if you know if you if you're running a business you're probably working 50 55 hours a week aren't you um without even thinking about it just to keep your business um going but yeah you know having that awareness that it can have those health impacts and if you're running the business and expecting your staff to work those hours as well you really need to think again because I think um, having looked at that as well, there is also that risk that they talked about this example. I'm, I'm flying without my notes here, Heather. It's okay. I think I wrote something down about one of the guys who was talking on there, how he gave up his job because he was working long hours. Just a little bit of an alarm bell went off as an employer. Are there going to be retrospective claims from people who have previously worked long hours, then have got ill health, and say it was linked to those long hours I worked for that company. That's what I picked up from the example in that article. Yeah, absolutely. I think there is an element of that. And and what but what they're also saying, and this goes back to the whole, you know, you can you can come up with a statistic and then um you can find the evidence to support a way of thinking. They say that often the deaths, so these deaths that were occurring in middle-aged to older men. Often they occurred much later in life, sometimes decades later than they'd actually worked the long hours. So it's not a case of but fifty-five year old man sits behind a desk and then drops dead from a stroke. But that's the same with a lot of industrial diseases, isn't it? A lot of claims gone through for yeah. things that happened twenty, thirty yes. years earlier. Yeah. So I think it's something for employers to be mindful of. Is that you know, there's potential litigation further down the line. Absolutely. And so I was then thinking about, okay, but when we start to look at, you know, a fifty five hour week, you know, how bad is that? You know, I wanted some context. So I went to gov.uk um, and started to look at the working time directive yeah. and working time regulations. And um, essentially, you in this country, you can't work more than 48 hours a week on average. And the average is normally taken over 17 weeks. There are changes afoot to change that to a 52-week reference period. Yeah. Right, okay. Um, you can choose to opt out of the 48-hour week. Has to be optional. Perfect. Okay. And then there's, there are some exemptions. And um, so you may have to work more than 48 hours if you're in the armed, for, in armed forces, emergency services, 
I'm thinking of doctors and nurses here. Yeah, and which we've just been seeing. Crikey, you know they probably, you know they probably give their right arm to work a forty-eight hour yeah. week over the last it's over like the last twelve time, months, isn't it? Yeah, and again, then going going on to the doctors element, um, their reference period isn't the seventeen weeks; it's twenty-six weeks. Okay. Now I can't quite get my head around how that impacts the figures. Does that make it more acceptable, more acceptable in inverted commas? Yeah, because you can have a longer period off, can't you, to make lower your average. So if your average is creeping up, is take two, yeah. week, two yeah. weeks off, yeah. and then your average lowers. Um, so yeah, that's the point of having a longer reference period. So yeah, so it's it starts to open up a whole can of worms, really, because you've got like the offshore oil industry, offshore gas. Where people work these weird rotors, don't they? Do they do like I don't know six weeks on and six weeks yeah. off, or which I just couldn't even begin to um, to get my head round. And then we start to look at what counts as work. Uh, you know, is training work? Is a business lunch work? Is checking your emails on your phone at night work? Exactly, and that. But yes, but well. I don't know. And I think there's two ways to look at this. One is as an employer, you need to be mindful of it is your responsibility as an employer to make sure your staff, even if you know, you're not encouraging your staff to work long hours. Say you've got somebody who's a bit of a workaholic and regularly does those hours but without you pushing them to do it, it's still your responsibility, isn't yeah. it? But also I'm thinking of the sole trader, the person who is running that business and putting in all hours that they need recognizing that there is a health impact and you know is it is it worth it for you you've really got to find some balance yeah i agree also um <laughs> bizarrely something's just popped up on my laptop uh, a charity that i'm involved with we use slack to communicate and very often on a weekend i'll go and check slack and you just get a little green light if somebody's online oh yeah and i just send a message and say what are you doing on slack it's the weekend, go away. And don't they put it back at you? Well, no, because I because I'm a I'm a volunteer in that capacity, so <laughs> right, I'm okay. choosing yeah. that that's up to me. But, but they're paying an employee, staff, right? Yeah. Okay. So I'm like, what what are you doing on Slack? You know, you need your rest time, you need your downtime. Yeah. Um, but I think it's I think it's funny, isn't it? Because you see that headline, and it it rings alarm bells, and quite rightly too. But then when you drill down. It does always, for me, things like that, you go, okay, so what is the norm? What is acceptable? And we've talked we've talked recently about, you know, people's expectations about being able to work from home, um, condensed hours, all of those types of things. So I think it's 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 got to be a movable feast now, hasn't it? Yeah. Talking uh, which, is that a Slack notification? Yeah, just another on one. See, this person, what time are we on? It's nearly 7 o'clock. It's nearly 7 o'clock. That individual should not be... Yeah, Sending if you haven't messages. guessed, guys, obviously we're, we're recording this at seven o'clock in the evening. Yeah, after we've finished today's work. After we finished today's work, <laughs> that's our commitment to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure you're going to message her back. And oh, say, I will what are you be. Doing? Yes, I will be. I will be. Um, yeah. So, so the 48 hour week, but as you say, there's yeah, changes there's changes afoot. afoot. Uh, they haven't gone through yet, but yeah, there are suggestions of changing that. And I, you do wonder as well, if somebody starts work and they're just given a form that says, oh, this is optional, but 
most people sign it. Yeah. Is it really optional if that happens? Well, particularly if it's when you've just joined a company... Because you, you don't go, want to be a trouble. You don't go, oh, I want the job, but I'm not doing the 48 hour. I want to opt out. Yeah. But I don't think most people would know that they could opt out. No. And it, companies are supposed to make sure it's voluntary. Mm. But, yeah, mm. you do wonder. Mm. So there we go. So um, I think staff are becoming more discerning about what constitutes decent work-life balance and, and working hours. But um, it also suggests to me that these figures are from 2016. So it'd be that... interesting to see what how the yeah. pandemic has changed yeah, that. I think so. Because I think there's, you know, people have been putting in much longer hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So to get everything done. While yeah, we've had the two extremes, and... haven't we? There are people on furlough who can't work, and then all the people who are still working are actually, you know, working unusually long hours. Yeah, yeah. very yeah. odd. Okay, let's let's talk about difficult people then, shall we? Oh, crikey. Yes, let's. So you've got a book there. It, it looks like a, a really, um, I don't know, like like a, a like Bible, shall we say. It's got powerful phrases for dealing with difficult people. Yeah. Was it as useful as it, the title suggests? Well, I have to be honest... Um, this is kind of stuff that I do and train people in helping people with difficult conversations where they need to broach different subjects. So for me personally, it's in, it, it is really interesting. It's really well written, but it's not, it's not, te- I don't want it to, I don't want to sound arrogant. It's not teaching me a great deal. What it is doing is it's actually putting some structure into the way that you approach conversations. Yeah. So they talk a lot about... Well, you wouldn't expect it to be new if that is what your teacher... Yeah. That is what you um, deliver as, yeah. as, as your um, training packages. So, Absolutely. Yeah, if it was completely new, I'd be a bit worried about your service. Well, it? of course, of course. But but where it is good um, is that it, it deals... With, for example, it says, OK, um, it talks about... How to how to have powerful conversations and you know the strategy and all that and the structure and all of those types of things. But then they actually literally just go right, okay, challenging co-workers, right? How to deal with a backstabber? How to deal with a criticizer? How to deal with a personal space invader? How to deal with a wimp? Okay, so oh, that's quite, good. Yeah. So because we've all worked with yeah. these types of people, and then it's like, which and this is what I think is really interesting. How about your boss? So uh, how to deal with an abusive boss, how to deal with an incompetent boss, (laughs) perhaps put that at the beginning, Um, passive boss, um, an unethical boss. So as I was reading, now I was reading a different different book, book, but I did come across a similar paragraph, which was talking about dealing with difficult bosses. And I just felt relieved because actually my boss is... You know, it doesn't fall into any of those yeah, categories. Yes. So actually, there's a bit of me that went, I'm skipping over that one and feeling really pleased about that. Yeah, that I don't need to know it. Yeah. I think what, for this particular one, here we go, how to deal with a gossip mongerer. Ooh. Um, how, which one did I tag here? A negative Nelly, I think it is. Because there's a few of those kicking around at the moment. You know, can I borrow the book? Yeah. <laughs> There you go. But but I, but the only thing I would say, and I'm, 
I don't know about you, but there may be people who would read this book because they kind of they kind of role play. You know, what's the approach? So what's the approach? So think first, um, gain a better understanding, define the problem, offer your best solution, agree on the resolution. Explains why doing it badly doesn't work and why doing it well does work. And then how you can apply the approach. Now, that's good. And I can see it's structured into nice um, chunks and paragraphs with headings. Yes. So it's a very clear structure, not rambling. Exactly. However, of course, with any sort of role play scenario or written um, conversation, it's fine if it goes in that direction. But if you Uh, sit somebody down and say, you know, a moaner, you know, and the basic premise is, you know, that you, you want to say, look, you know, you're always talking to me about negative stuff and I kind of don't really want to listen to it anymore, but you do it in a very diplomatic way. And that's fine unless per- and the person goes, oh, I didn't realise that I didn't think about it like that and blah, blah, blah. And then you have to go to, hang on, I've just got to look to a different what chapter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so people might read that and go, yeah, well, that's all very well, but this isn't a soap opera. Mm. You know, it's not going to play out like that. But there are some really good things about how to structure a conversation and how to deflect um, or, or have the courage to broach you know if somebody's got body odor how do you start a conversation with them about that so it's thought provoking what did you what did you look at I'm not going to share the um, title of the book so I, I'm I don't I don't want to be negative I, I it was along the similar lines but everything that you said that was good about your book I didn't find in this book so okay. um, I gave it a good go. So it isn't structured into nice paragraphs. So I'll just show you, Heather. Oh, it's just loads of text. Just loads of text. So, and it, and what I thought you said in yours, where it, it defines the type of difficult person, it doesn't have that sort of structure. So you couldn't hone in and go on, um, you know, for a particular issue that you've got. Right. It's more about how you help yourself to deal with it which i i, I get that yeah, yeah. Uh, you know so in, in terms of staying calm and establishing boundaries but sometimes what you want is a solution to a particular problem not to enrich yourself in general yeah if you, if yeah, you know yeah. What I mean. yeah 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 a starting point a starting point i mean one thing that wasn't in here was you know we, there's a lot about talking about how to to deal with bosses but if you are a boss um you know, there isn't anything about how to deal with somebody who's insubordinate. Oh, well, <laughs> to be fair, there is a chapter on dealing with difficult subordinates. And okay. One, so that's okay. And one of the things, it was in the very first chapter, um, and the probably only one of a few things that resonated me with me was um, how um, they spelt out that it was easier to deal with somebody that was openly obnoxious. Yeah, you know, and that, that you could actually point to their behaviour, and everybody would nod and say, "Yeah, that's really bad." Yeah, and there are a lot more difficult and challenging behaviours that that you can't point at, or you'd find difficulty explaining to somebody why that's so challenging. And I think it, it's those little nuances that I, I went, yes, yes, you're right. If somebody was downright obnoxious to me, I wouldn't have any problem dealing with yeah. that. Yeah. It's the insidious the stuff. Yes. Yeah, the subtlety. Yeah. 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 Well, you don't want to be seen. To, you you don't want to be seen to be being oversensitive or confrontational when, in actual fact, they might be being quite passively aggressive or or just a bleeding yeah. nuisance. And I think ultimately, it, it's about 
um developing yourself so this this book i read is right it's about developing your own self-esteem it's about developing trust and and courage isn't it but actually i like the fact that it gives you your book gives you a bit of a framework on yeah you know the, yeah. this is the problem we've got yeah now let's yes. break it down yeah and so you they they talk using this structure so here's the um you know use the i phrase demonstrate that you understand um so that you know they feel that you're not attacking them that you know i appreciate what it's like find some sort of compromise uh agree on a resolution and and then have reconciliation so you know i'm, I'm really glad that we were able to talk about this um you know and i think that's you know it's, it's going forward you know this is this is the way forward i think that's that's quite good and they also flag up things to think about so they play out the scenario and then they say um something to think about so for example consider that the know-it-all may display this personality trait because of a deep-seated insecurity and lack of confidence so and this is i was training um today it's like what's going on with the other person yeah. when they behave in that way that you're finding difficult what's actually going on with yeah. them and i think we've and got most, that at the moment yeah i am mostly difficult people their issues are caused by what's going on with their life or even you respond to them and, and believe them to be difficult because what's going on in your life exactly yeah. so sometimes it is just that lack of understanding and, yeah. and and lack of seeing eye to eye isn't it rather yeah. than one person actually trying to be difficult and uh, yeah absolutely agree but also it's about having regular check-ins with people so that something really small doesn't just to, doesn't it doesn't become a conflict it doesn't get legs and become this sort of monster that now it's too big a conversation to have whereas actually you know we know about using humor and saying you, you know is there a reason why you don't put the lid on the toothpaste darling you know <laughs> that sort of thing but rather than the for goodness sake what do i have to do everything in this house but the, you know hmm. <laughs> we've that all been there felt. we've all been there we've all been there my husband does put the lid on the toothpaste good yeah just doesn't put it back in the pot anyway <laughs> so a couple of good books so this one um by renee evanson powerful phrases for dealing with difficult people which contains 325 ready to use words and phrases for working with challenging personalities um i'll, I'll put a link to on our on our um, website which is the business.community now our profile this week is of a lady that I never heard of. I can honestly say, if I heard if if she came and punched me on the nose, I wouldn't I wouldn't know anything. No. So about if she her. came and said, "Do you know who I am?" I could say, honestly say, "Sorry, no, no. no, I don't." Um, her name is here. We go with the pronunciation. Doris Feigenbaum was her born name. She's now Doris Fisher, and she um, is an American billionaire who set up. That well-known clothes store, Gap or The Gap. The Gap, yes. The Gap. I never call it The Gap. I just call it Gap. Yeah. No, I, no. I, until I saw um, the article that yeah. I was researching it on um, Forbes. Yeah. Um, I was like, always Gap. Yeah, but it is technically The Gap. The Gap. Doris S. Fisher. I think there's an actress called Doris Fisher. Oh, okay. <laughs> we keep coming across this, don't we? Not, or is it Peter Moore, not to be confused with the serial killer? Oh, God. That was probably the most serious one, wasn't it? 
Yeah, so she yeah. set it up uh, with her late husband, Donald Fisher. And I didn't realise that the gap was quite so old. It was set up in 1969, so it's even older than me. Yeah. And not quite as old as you. And not quite. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. That's very kind of you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's set up a long time ago. But of course, I don't think it came to the UK until within recent living memory rather than... <laughs> yeah, I don't remember it from my childhood, yeah. But it's... Um, so in the States, it, 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 it it's massive. Um, but they started from really small beginnings, didn't they? They, you know, they, they raised cash, started one store... And then it, it kind of yeah, developed. Yeah, to be fair, uh, raising cash makes it sound like they, they raised a little bit of money. Um, they opened their first store and they raised £63,000, oh. which in 1969 is quite a lot of money. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, so they're sort of, in terms of position, they were sort of affordable. You know, Gap clothing isn't mega expensive, is it? No. But it's also not. Primark level, you know, it's it, it's accessible to most people, and I, I mean, none of this stuff fits me anymore. But you know, I have in the past had clothes. I, I did buy the Gap. Um, my kids' clothes there when they were little. Sometimes, yeah, Baby yeah. Gap was quite cute. Yeah, quite funky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. yeah, so on Forbes, the list uh, she's listed as um, self-made with a score of seven, and she's got three children. And she's got a philanthropy score of two. I didn't dig into that, but I just thought that was an interest. Two. You're a two. Yeah. Out of? I don't know. hundred? <laughs> now, and also I found out on Forbes that Gap is short for Generation Gap. Well, I didn't know that. No. Well, there you go. The things you can find out on the Forbes website. They agreed on the name, apparently, after Doris mixed her husband's original idea. Next, I've not heard of that word before. Next, next, I don't like that. Next, next, said no. Anyway, <laughs> I learned a new word this week. After Doris nixed her husband's original idea of pants and discs. Now I've got to say, I think Gap is a bit better than pants and discs. It's yeah. a whole other thing in in, um, yeah. in the UK. Yeah, yeah, knickers. The, Going to buy some pants and some discs. Yeah, well, it's back to the next bit, isn't it? Mm. Um, they also have, according to Forbes, a $1 billion art collection, including works by Andy Warhol, Gerhard Richter, and they're on display in San Francisco's Museum of Modern Art. She studied art, didn't she, I think? Yeah, I think and, and I think art seems to play a big part in... I, I say they, I mean, I was talking about her and her husband having amassed this art, seem to play, play a big part in their life, uh, the collection of and um, patronage of the arts. Well, uh, as I say, I've got, I think I've got one gap, item of gap clothing in my wardrobe that still fits me, which is like a gilet. But I've also got, they, they mentioned that they have different divisions. So there's there's Gap, but there's also Banana Republic. My favourite ever scarf was a grey scarf from Banana Republic. Old Navy, never heard of. Intermix, Hill City and Athleta. Uh, and they, so they have multiple divisions. Yeah, uh, I only knew about Old Navy from the Forbes website where it said they cancelled plans to spin off Old Navy as a separate company last year. Okay, so, oh, all right. 
We're clearly not their target market for Old Navy anyway, are we? We're not. Even though there's old in the title. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and we both wear, are wearing blue. Um, the the big thing that I was interested in, so she as an individual, apart from the art thing, is quite difficult to get a handle on as to what she's like. But it did then make me think about, well, what where is Gap up to in the UK at the moment? And it seems that they're essentially going to close all their stores in the UK in July oh. and go online. Oh, that's a lot of um, retailers are doing that, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah. Whereas in the States, they've started selling some of their products through another outlet. Um, I think it's called Sam's or something. Uh, so rather than... Um, which which is quite a coup for this this retailer. Um, it's like, I suppose it's like, I don't know, Marks and Spencer's having a a gap section. Um, so so the, there's going to be, it's 95 stores across the UK. Um, and they're thinking of, of, as I say, becoming online only in Europe. So not just oh, the whole in of the UK. Europe. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a big strategic decision. But yeah, yeah, one that is shared by a lot of similar companies, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But for the, there's some stats that I came across. Um, to February 2020, they had a massive fall in retail sales. It fell by 9.5%. Before the pandemic. Before the pandemic, yeah. Um, so that... Um, so it was... It was um, selling 195 million that year um, but produced operating losses of 40 million so there was a decline or clearly a decline before the pandemic ever even hit yeah. um, and then if you're in a bit of a wavering position it's it going to be really killed you it's going to be really difficult to come back I think it? that's the same with a lot of um, high street shops isn't it we, we've mentioned that before yeah it, they might have been struggling before but this is really just Put the nail in the coffin. Yeah. <laughs> Again. Yeah. We've got a lot of coffins and nails this week. We have. We have. Yeah. So uh, do you want to know the rabbit hole I went down? Please tell me. It was down the dark hole rabbit. Dark money. Sorry, it's dark hole. Dark, well, it would be a rabbit hole. It's probably quite dark. <laughs> dark money rabbit hole. Is that illegal? Well, let, let me... Let me fill you in, Heather, okay. because I'm no, no expert in dark money okay. now, I hasten to Sounds add. Um, but... Um, Doris and her husband um, co-founded the KIPP Foundation, um, which supports public charter schools. That sounds quite posh, but public schools in America, if you remember, are different to public schools in the UK. And they donated $15 million to it when they founded it. So it's like, oh, that sounds good, you know, supporting the schools. And I, I took a look at their website um, and I thought, oh, yeah, that looks, it's a non-profit network of 250 college um, public charter schools, um, sorry, college preparatory public charter schools, educating early childhood, elementary, middle and high school students. So I thought, okay, that must be quite good. But then I, I just came across a couple of articles where I went, oh, that's interesting. So first of all, on Wikipedia, it just mentioned one little paragraph in 2019, it was revealed that Doris, together with her sons, donated nearly $9 million to a dark money group which opposed Barack Obama in the 2012 election. Oh! So, ooh, 
what's this dark money thing dark money um and i thought well, well maybe that's just on wikipedia but yeah. then i went and there's an article on forbes we love forbes that's yeah. i refer to it all yeah. the time um and they, they've got an article, at least 20 billionaires behind dark money group that opposed Obama. So it's a thing. legit thing. Um, so a non-profit group, it says, with the bland name, Americans for Job Security, spent however much money supporting the Republicans in 2010 and in denouncing Obama in 2012. The biggest individual donors, Charles Schwab, and Doris Fisher, along with her sons, Robert, John and William. So there's dark money. So I'm thinking, wow, okay, is this dark money okay? So I thought I did a bit more of a search. Yeah. Investopedia, thank you very much. What is dark money? And I just needed a simple explanation. So it refers to contributions to political groups that are received from donors whose identities are not disclosed and that are used to influence elections. Oh, my word. How is that? Do, do, do. Um, dark money political group contributions, apparently, according to Investopedia, are growing. And they often contributed through social welfare non-profit groups. This is where I come back in a full loop to kick their right. public okay. charter school okay. foundation. So then I did a quick search. Is KIP a source of dark money? And there we go, um, exposed by CMD Kip's efforts to keep the public in the dark while seeking millions as taxpayer subsidies um, and a number of other um, little articles. I'm not going to pay a lot of attention to if Forbes has said that they're involved in dark money and I found out what dark money is, then that's, um, that's enough for me. But there was an awful lot of other articles that were just discussing the where's and why falls of this but i learned something new i didn't know what dark money was until now so so talk me through again how it works so they've invested in the school yeah right number of people invest in the school yeah and then there's another foundation maybe yeah um that um so this one was was it called america's I can't remember what it was called now. Americans for Job Security. So somehow through there, whether it's through the school or whether it's through other means, but it's certainly through a non-profit like Americans for Job Security, then they're making these donations yes. anonymously, essentially, because they're protected by the shell of the, the organisation. Right, okay. And then having significant, according to this, influence over elections. So do you think, you remember when we um, reviewed The Great Hack? Yeah. It's going to, there's going to be oh, there's some dark, dark money, money there. there. Yeah. Yeah. Very dark money. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So oh. I, I feel like of the all the research I've done this week and all the reading, dark money. That's the big my big takeaway yeah. this week. Yeah. Yeah. That's Sorry, nice. Doris, but I just got, like I say, went down the rabbit hole and it was dark. <laughs> but yeah not to do down her um her efforts there obviously kip is is a well-respected non-profit organization and um i wouldn't have linked it to dark money if forbes hadn't <laughs> um and um also that you know gap have, have done some great things and um doris and her husband donald um 
and now her sons have kept that business going. And it's pr- and it and they own it. It's privately owned, isn't it? It's you know it's their wealth, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Which um, is quite a thing because, as we know, very often things get sub consumed. No sub subsumed into. But the, ones with multiple yeah. brands, yeah. So we talked about them before. I mean, these there's one company that like owns hundreds of brands, yeah. and it's all actually the same company. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there we go. Interesting stuff. That's all we've got time for this week on the business community. If you've enjoyed listening to this week's podcast, you can find out about all the things that we've talked about over the years at our website, which is thebusiness.community. We do hope you'll join us again next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.